Welcome to my podcast. I'm Arnie Sabatelli, and this is Hemingway Word for Word, in which I hope to offer episodes on many of Hemingway's short stories and novels. I will attempt to provide a complex analysis of his writing, pushing to consider ideas all too often neglected by traditional readings of his work. I will occasionally reference, critique, or debate with articles, films, books written about him. But mostly, these are my own ideas, distilled from many years of reading, writing about, and teaching Hemingway to college and high school students. Before settling in, I recommend reading or rereading the work at hand and having a copy of the text with you as you listen. I hope you enjoy these episodes and that you will consider subscribing to the podcast or giving me your support with a small donation. For today's podcast, we turn to the story Up in Michigan, which, as I mentioned in my last podcast, Hemingway's publisher, Horace Liverite, refused to include in Inner Time because of its subject matter, date rape. But it's clearly a story that should be read and considered in the context of the collection. We find many of the repeating words and phrases also found throughout In Our Time. And the story takes place directly across the bay from where Nick and Marjorie end their relationship in the end of something. This story echoes that story in a myriad of other ways. One story in which a relationship comes to a close, the other where a relationship is begun, and hopefully one that will last only for one night. In a contrasting way, as the end of something shows a young couple in love, who both seem to experience that same vague, powerful sensation Liz feels so strongly she can't even sleep the night before Jim returns from his hunting trip. This story shows a young couple decidedly not in love, and the fun Jim is having is surely not anything like what Nick and Marjorie experience in their relationship out across that same bay. In more ways than one, Nick and Marjorie are on the opposite side of Horton's Bay. Overall, Up in Michigan serves as a striking counterpoint to that story, showing a relationship that is only fun for one person. Perhaps most striking in terms of its echoes and contrasts with the end of something is when Liz feels everything felt gone at the end of the story, leaving her feeling something very similar to what Nick feels when Marjorie rose away, quote, as if everything had gone to hell inside him. Notice, too, at this story's end, another male character is laying down, inactive, disconnected from interaction with the landscape, something we see in The Battler, Cat in the Rain, the end of something, and in several inner chapters. While a female character, acts is upright, engaged with her surroundings, leaving the man behind. But take some time now, if you haven't already, to read or reread Up in Michigan. To read this story alongside the other stories of In Our Time extends and deepens the meanings of all the stories it comes into contact with, and one of the more striking similarities occurs with Liz's repetitive use of the word like to attempt to describe her emotional response to Jim. She uses almost exactly the same language the woman in Cat in the Rain uses to try to understand how the padrone makes her feel. Read that paragraph at the end of the first page of Up in Michigan, with its eight uses of like in close proximity. Then go back to A Cat in the Rain and reread the passage where the American wife attempts to articulate what she likes about the padrone. 
These are the most overtly similar passages between stories in the entire collection. And it must have been especially difficult for Hemingway to have to exclude this story, since the one is so clearly intended to be read alongside and in the context of the other, and since, in general, all the stories in the collection rely so much on each other to extend and complicate their meanings. In both The Cat in the Rain and Up in Michigan, we also find women intent on physically getting or understanding comprehending a confusing emotion they find welling up inside of them. For the American wife, she thinks the cat will do it, and tragically, for Liz, the things Jim does to her don't even come close to giving her what she quote-unquote wants. Notice, too, how Hemingway tells us that Liz quote, wanted it, in much the same way that the American wife emphatically tells her husband that she wants a cat, quote, I want a cat, I want a cat now, etc., this surely softens the more crass implication that she wanted sex, for we can't help but hear the woman at the end of Cat in the Rain listing all the things she wants when reading that Liz quote-unquote wanted it. While the stakes and consequences were so much lower for the American wife, and the substitute cat the padrone has the maid bring to her only serves to help her realize that the thing she more truly wants are all the metaphorical things the cat out in the rain speaks to in her heart. We still find a striking, mirroring story arc here. There is plenty more to be said about the shared themes and technique of these stories, which I will come to soon. But I also find it particularly fruitful to consider this story alongside The Battler, the story Hemingway wrote specifically to replace it in the collection, and this gives us a unique opportunity to see into Hemingway's artistic approach. Jim's violent rape surely belongs in that same dark, out-of-control, masculine violence-based world we experience in The Battler. I would say Jim is perhaps the ugliest of all the men from those two stories, from the entire collection, the most misshapen, metaphorically. His utter disregard for Liz's emotions takes things we've seen on an infinitely smaller scale in neglectful men like George in Cat in the Rain or Nick in The End of Something, or going back to episode one and moving outside the collection to the man in Hills Like White Elephants, to a disturbing new level. Jim is the ultimate image of rugged, tough, physical masculinity gone awry. That he's a blacksmith seems right, since his profession stands as a kind of classical image or archetype of male virility and physicality. And this dynamic is one we find throughout Hemingway's work. Just as with the inclusion of the N-word in The Battler, Hemingway leaves sexually explicit language in this story for perhaps the same reason, to let the reader really see and experience this ugly facet of human behavior more dynamically. When looking to The Battler still further, we find that Bugs becomes like the classically female characters of Liz and Mrs. Smith, who also cook for and bring food to groups of men, just as Bugs cooks and provides for Nick and Ad. And both stories rattle us to the bones, enrage us, scare us even. The word frightened is used repeatedly in Up in Michigan, just as Nick sees the swamp as ghostly and his fear is palpable throughout the battler. And here, too, the story ends in the same kind of misty darkness Nick finds himself lost in when he is thrown off the train, as Liz, after the rape, notices the mist, quote, coming up from the lake.
up in Michigan appears to be one of Hemingway's earliest stories. Since he claimed it was the only story he had written to survive, the tragic theft of a suitcase filled with all the drafts and copies of his writing, which his then-wife Hadley was bringing with her on a train to meet him on a journalism assignment. It's striking to me that perhaps Hemingway's earliest extant story deals with this theme. That ugly, aggressive masculinity was one of the first things he wanted to look at and consider critically through the lens of his art. In this early story, we also find another common occurrence in Hemingway's work, a female character countering this dynamic with her sensitivity, creative alertness, her recognition of beauty, selflessness, tenderness, poise, dignity. This story also demonstrates very early on in his formal career as a fiction writer his unique use of point of view. Here, as is often the case, the shifting perspective and the way the story slowly finds Liz's point of view as the most central contributes significantly to the meaning of the story. Note the sudden shift into Jim's mind, how jarring it is, as he's drinking and eating, quote, Jim began to feel great, end quote. And we see that the rape for Jim was just another indulgence, making his behavior all the more disturbing. For me, the omniscient, shifting point of view we find in the early paragraphs of the story has an almost once-upon-a-time feel to it, or maybe even the objective feel of a news story. And the innocent joy that guides us early on helps deepen the emotion we feel when we witness Jim's crime wholly through the frightened and confused perspective of Liz later in the story. I think one needs to go slowly through the quiet beginning paragraphs of this story in order to fully consider the horrible act that follows. This turbulent, tragic story begins so calmly with such a matter-of-fact feel to it. The opening paragraphs are almost saccharine, unassuming, a stark contrast to the replacement story, The Battler, which begins in medias race in the middle of the action with Nick having been tossed off the train. The story at first even seems as if it will be about a blacksmith, Jim, for we're given a range of details about him before ever meeting Liz, who he bought the shop from, that he lives above it, and a few details about his appearance, that he's short, mustached. We're even given objective, simple details about the town, how many houses there are, where they stand in relation to one another, that the road is sandy, what's up the road one way and down the road the other way. In a story with such stark, disturbing drama to come, the hushed lack of dramatic tension stands out, especially in a collection where so many stories begin with striking dramatic action at the outset or where the landscape is being described in a more charged manner. For me, this understated, simple, non-provoking tone speaks to Liz's own wide-eyed innocence. You tell about a town by simply telling where the buildings are in relationship to each other or by giving the names of the people who live in the houses. Perhaps the seeming lack of urgency, no mills coming to an end being mentioned, no boats coming in the darkness that shouldn't be there, no empty squares that are normally full of artists and Italians, makes the events to come all the more jarring and ugly. The point of view settles on Liz early on, though, when we come to all those things she liked about Jim. Here we see Liz struggling to pinpoint, as she does immediately afterward with the barge's invisible motion, what might be the thing instigating her feelings. And here, too, we find the first use of a listing of things she quote-unquote likes that repeats almost exactly in A Cat in the Rain when the woman lists all the things about the padrone she likes. 
but there's something distinctly different about Liz's list of things she likes about Jim. Notice the words it and about in her list. For everything that Liz lists, she adds a seemingly extraneous it and an often unnecessary about. She liked it the way he walked over from the shop. She liked it about his mustache. She liked it about how white his teeth were. She liked it the way the hair was black on his arms. Here, as we often see in Hemingway when a character is struggling to understand more deeply, a seemingly simple sentence contains some jarring, syntactically off-kilter phrasing. One could easily remove every it and about, making the sentences more concise and not changing the literal meaning at all. She liked the way he walked over from the shop. She liked his mustache. She liked how white his teeth were. But I think these words are essential when considering the deeper meaning at play. Repeating the word it suggests that the thing she likes is some one thing she knows is acting upon her, is moving within her, but like those barges she will look at cannot be seen directly. She sets out here to look to the specific concrete things that may well be stirring the emotion in her. This reminds me of Hemingway's essay first published in Esquire, A Monologue with the Maestro, where he wrote about what good writers must do. He tells a young writer intent on improving his work to pay very close attention to the concrete things that give him the emotion he is feeling. If we get into a fish today, he urges him to chart the small, precise details that contribute to what he's feeling, like the droplets of water running down the line. He tells him to go to the theater and watch people getting in and out of cars to try to find the specific things that give him his emotional responses. It surely seems as if Liz is taking this advice here, working as a writer or an artist might to try to pinpoint the source of her emotion. Liz's word about also contributes significantly to what she's trying to discover in a writer-like manner. She liked it about his mustache is perhaps the most telling. That about suggests something deeper, something more mysterious. She liked it. It is one thing, one emotion, somehow evoked by a plethora of things about his mustache. Speaks to the mustache as not just being a plain object, for something about that mustache evokes her attraction to him. She knows this and is pushing herself to underscore that very mystery, to unravel it. A different person struck with this same awakening of sexual attraction might not be so forceful, might just settle with, I like his mustache. But Liz is trying to find a way to see or capture, grasp or ascertain this emotional uprising within her just as she finds a way to detect the motion of the oar barges in the next paragraph. When looking at the American wife listing what she likes about the padroni, we find other connections. Most notably is that both women blend concrete and abstract things in their lists. For the padrone, she lists, quote, the serious way he took any complaints alongside his big hands. Likewise, Liz Quote, likes it that the Smiths liked him. For both women, we find characters positing a broad range of things, casting a net of both abstract and concrete things they like around the emotion to try to get at its source and origin. 
In the following paragraph, Hemingway extends these ideas with, quote, from Smith's back door, you could look out across the woods that ran down to the lake and across the bay. This you becomes Liz a few sentences later, and the details become more vivid and more telling. Quote, it was very beautiful in the spring and summer, the bay blue and bright and usually white caps on the lake out beyond the point from the breeze blowing from Charlevoix and Lake Michigan. From Smith's back door, Liz could see. I'll hold off on addressing the other things Liz's eyes settle on for just a moment to look to this sequence that brings us to her as the one, quote, looking out from the back door. Notice again the similarities with The Cat in the Rain. In both stories, a woman stands looking out at a landscape, noting things in it that are compelling. In Cat in the Rain, a woman stood looking out is prefaced with a waiter stood looking out. And in a similar way, we find, quote, from Smith's back door, you could look out across first, and then, quote, from Smith's back door, Liz could see, end quote. The repetition of that phrase, from Smith's back door, has a similar effect as what we see in Cat in the Rain. Both women bring themselves looking out into the frame, shifting the focus to make themselves part of the picture they are observing, both saying something essential about what is about to transpire. And just as the woman in Cat in the Rain zooms in on something small and seemingly inconsequential, and up in Michigan, we find, quote, from Smith's back door, Liz could see ore barges way out in the lake going toward Boyne City. So she is, as with so many of Hemingway's female characters, looking with real intensity at her landscape. And Liz, just as with the woman in Cat in the Rain, just as with Marjorie in The End of Something, just as with the girl in Hills Like White Elephants, sees something out there that begins to speak to other mysteries she is struggling with. That Liz can only ascertain the motion of the barges by walking away and coming back later. That she can't see their motion in the moment of the looking and that she pays such close attention to that detail, speaks to the heart of the story's meaning. Just as with her trying to pinpoint the emotion she feels for Jim, here too, she works hard to see things that are imperceptible in a clear and overt sense when looked at directly or logically. She works to find a way to mark and chart something outside the reach of her ordinary vision. And that phrase could well serve as a definition for what artists do. Like those barges, the emotion she feels for Jim is both very present and chartable, and at the same time invisible and hard to see in the immediate moment. I find Liz to be a remarkable character. We see that she notices the beauty of the bay, the small details like the whitecaps, noting their source from the unseen winds blowing across Lake Charlevoix, or even beyond that, across the nearby larger body of water, Lake Michigan, She's intent to know things that are difficult to see, to trace them to their source. For me, she seems here nearly as excited by her immersion in the beauty and wonder of the world as she is by Jim. And perhaps it's not too strong to say that Hemingway considers artistic joy to be not so unlike sexual attraction. I find it critically important that Hemingway spends so much time in the story building up to the rape scene on the dock. As Jim and the other men get ready for their hunting trip, we find still more compelling developments. Of special note 
is Liz's desire to make something special for Jim, but then she's afraid to ask Mrs. Smith for the extra ingredients. As an early 20th century or perhaps late 19th century woman, Liz's understanding of human sexuality is certainly far less extensive than it would be today. She may well think that whatever this feeling is can be gratified by doing the traditional thing women do for men, cooking for them, providing for them, giving them sustenance, something we also see bugs you in the replacement story, The Battler. There's an awareness here, I would argue, for something Hemingway is rarely given enough credit for, but which you find repeatedly in his work, traditional roles and expectations of men and women and how those traditional roles are often critiqued and or undercut through the narrative. In perhaps his most famous love story, A Farewell to Arms, Frederick Henry is a soldier, his lover Catherine a nurse. They each wear the traditional uniform of their gender, men as soldiers, brave, rugged, strong, women as nurses, nurturing, supportive, attendant. But they both end up stepping squarely away from these traditional roles. This is something I will look to extensively when I get to that work in the future. Here we find something similar, I think. Liz considers gratifying the mysterious emotion welling up inside her within the context of what she sees as a traditional role for women to cook, to nurture, just as Jim remains squarely in the traditional role of a hardy, hunting, heavy-drinking man and a blacksmith. But Liz is perhaps afraid of playing that role. Her fear is critical. The word frightened will appear repeatedly in the encounter with Jim, but this is its first appearance. Liz's fear certainly stems from her naivete, but I think there's more to it. She could fear that by slipping into her traditional role as a woman, she would also lose the power and mystery of the unrequited emotion she's been experiencing. She could fear that the power and poignancy of whatever act or event it is that will answer the emotions awakening in her will also somehow quench the emotion, put out the flame. Liz's emotional response to Jim is something she doesn't want to lose. She finds that it is, quote, fun to think about him, and, quote, if she let herself go, it was even better. Just before the rape scene, she's hoping to see Jim to bring these glances, quote, with her to bed. Liz's feelings toward Jim seem fused with her way of looking at the barges, of detecting their motion, with her way of seeing herself and her world. While the rape scene is shocking and unexpected, and I think Hemingway wanted us to be surprised by it, for those quiet, cheerful, early descriptions to suddenly be shattered, Hemingway uses a range of striking word repetitions, many of them in chiasmus form, a rhetorical poetic form I've addressed extensively, especially in my episode on the end of something. Some repeating words that, from a Freudian perspective, are especially foreshadowing are the words, quote, hard, big, stiff. While Hemingway even flirts with pornographic usages, what surely upset Gertrude Stein so much, he's also using sexuality in an artistically daring manner in the story. For one thing, what Liz is experiencing is big. To come right out and look at that line, which many students often chuckle about and blush at when discussed in class, Liz's, quote, oh, it's so big and it hurts so, is a powerful line of dialogue precisely because of his pornographic or inaccroachable, as Gertrude Stein called it, unhangable in a gallery, nature. Note the two words it's here juxtaposed to all those it's in her list of what she liked about Jim. She liked it about, she liked it that. If this is the answer to her powerfully 
wonderfully artistically provocative emotion being sexually violated, then it is tremendously painful and equally big in its nature. One chiasmus that stands out occurs with the following word repetitions. Listen for the repeating phrases in the following quotation. Tight against the chair, feeling, and she couldn't stand it. Quote, Jim held her tight against the chair and kissed her. It was such a sharp, aching, hurting feeling. She felt she couldn't stand it. She felt Jim right through the back of the chair and she couldn't stand it. And then something clicked inside of her and the feeling was warmer and softer. Jim held her tight against the chair and she wanted it now. The words occur in this order, tight against the chair, feeling she couldn't stand it. Then folding back out, she couldn't stand it, feeling tight against the chair. In the first half of this chiasmus, we find the adjectives sharp, aching, hurting, which are replaced in the same order in the chiasmus with the adjectives warmer and softer in the second half of the chiasmus. In the middle of the chiasmus, at the pivot point, or the fulcrum, is the phrase, she felt Jim through the back of the chair. So the language directs our eyes to land on that observation. While he is removed from her by the barrier of the chair, she can still feel him right through it. This is different than feeling his hands on her breasts or later on her leg. She, in a sense, is positing two different ways of feeling. One can't literally feel someone through the wooden or cane back of a chair. That phrase, centered in the chiasmus, as a painter might center a centrally important image on a canvas, with lines, with shapes, with color, speaks to Liz's different modes of awareness and the attention she pays to that barrier, that she is feeling him as he touches her and then feeling his presence on the other side of the chair suggests, as with the unnecessary it or about in her list of things she liked, something more than just the immediate obvious thing, that she is hoping now, finally, to attain a kind of answer to the puzzle of this new emotion. And right after this chiasmus ends, we find, and she wanted it now, as a kind of final sum of these patterned repetitions. The word frightened repeats six times in the latter half of the story. The word afraid once. The word scared once. The rape is not only physically painful and terrifying, but it tragically obliterates all of the mysterious power of this new novel emotion Liz was experiencing. Perhaps she's so terrified because she can sense that she won't find an answer to the emotion. Perhaps the emotion itself is end enough. The recognition of the mystery and power of the world to provoke overwhelming emotional responses from us. When you consider this story again alongside A Cat in the Rain, this becomes still more clear, as the woman's artistic awakening and sensations of something small but at the same time extremely important are surely not answered by the large cat the padrone has the maid bring to her. It's also striking that amidst Liz's awakening awareness of beauty and of using one's perceptive capabilities to start to trigger and understand the power of art that she becomes dominated and abused 
by a purely masculine, animus-driven dynamic, a dynamic we see so clearly in The Battler, where Bugs even knocks Ad out with a phallus-like weapon, might Hemingway be suggesting that the forces at play in what we nowadays call toxic masculinity are directly opposed to the forces at play in the creation of art? Liz's actions at the end of the story take these ideas further still. While many of my students want her to kick Jim into the lake as he lays there, his mouth agape passed out after his crime, and I can fully understand where they're coming from, others point out that by doing this, she would be engaged in exactly the same kinds of dynamics Jim has used against her. Liz's actions at the end of the story are so dignified, strong, endearing, she covers him up gently with her own coat, where he, quote, curls tighter, the same words used in Cat in the Rain, to describe the cat who curled tight to not get wet. She takes care to make sure he's covered neatly, tucking him in as one might tuck in a child, just as she keeps her hair in a neat bun, the kind of bun the American wife yearns for in Cat in the Rain. And she even gives him a kiss on the cheek as a mother might to a small child, almost as if she is converting the rape into a role play of a mother and child before noting the mist coming up from the lake and walking away. Jim's act of violent dominance and control has left her in a place where everything felt gone. All that wonderfully mysterious, impossible-to-pinpoint attraction has vanished, and she's like Nick at the end of something, who also notes an internal feeling of, quote, everything was gone to hell inside of him. Though Jim is the one laying down, Liz the one, like Marjorie, moving away. Liz's tender act of covering him up feels a lot like Bug's tenderness toward Nick and Ad. And to show human compassion in such a moment speaks to Liz's strength of character. She isn't submitting to Jim. He goes from being the bull, goring her as she lays helplessly in the sand, a scene we'll see play itself out in an inner chapter to come, to the matador who conquers the bull with his cape, her own coat. And she, like the matador, who dresses effeminately, has a long braid of hair, who moves like a dancer, not a soldier. She conquers not with brute force, but with artistic gesture, with symbolic action. Her covering Jim up at the end is the gesture of an artist. It is her saying that she is not defeated. That she will even give up her own covering, coat, sacrificing something of her own, something as polar opposite to what Jim has done to her as is possible. She works to act in the exact opposite manner of violence that she's experienced, to juxtapose his violent selfishness with tender selflessness as a kind of answer, perhaps the best answer she can find, to somehow contend with the tremendously sad and horrible thing she has encountered, something that takes everything away. She is not only empty of her desire for Jim, that word everything is more encompassing than that. Gone, too, may well be that mystery of seeing the barges, of noting their motion only by stepping away, then returning. The only thing from that landscape, now in darkness, the same haunting darkness Nick encounters in The Battler, she also sees the mist rising up from the lake, an image we find in that swamp Nick encounters in The Battler and later in Big Two-Hearted River, something frightening, because it speaks to the absolute brutality human beings can enact on others, a force we see at its most terrifying in war. 
Liz's small, tender gestures at the end of the story may well be the only thing to provide her any hope at all, with everything gone. They may well be her initiating an artistic response, like the small but powerful gesture of Nick dipping his hand in the warm water in the cool chill of morning in Indian camp. As the cold mist approaches in this story, coming up again from the lake, she is creating something to stand as a kind of answer to the haunting, terrifying things she's encountered. Notice how Jim's only words during the rape, we got to, you know we got to, are monosyllabic, direct, animalistic, and notice that his hands seemed separated from his very being and are terrifying specifically in that they are so inhuman that he seems to be answering to a force at the exact opposite end of the spectrum as creativity, art, the recognition of beauty, that view from Smith's back door, which was, quote, very beautiful in the spring and summer, the bay blue and bright. In Up in Michigan, Hemingway creates a story meant to upset us, meant to invite us to contemplate both the beauty and the ugliness of human beings. The ugly events and explicit language are absolutely necessary that we might experience the brutally devastating extinguishing of Liz's burgeoning epiphanies. Rape for Hemingway was the perfect artistic choice to provide enough gravity to the dangers and terrors of masculine rage run amok that he had witnessed in World War I at such a young age. If we consider George as the father of the Indian child in Indian camp, a pregnancy that may well have also resulted from rape, remember the woman bites him, and look carefully to the dynamics at play in the story he wrote specifically to replace this one, the battler, we find that violent male aggression was something Hemingway wanted to contend with as an artist in this collection. And he consistently, throughout his life as an artist, sets it in opposition to the forces of beauty, artistic nuance and complexity, and the redemptive power of artists to find ways to know and to contend with the complexities of existence. Thanks for listening to Hemingway Word for Word. For my next podcast, I'll return to In Our Time and take a look at the story Cross Country Snow, in which we find, I would argue, the most fully developed and mature portrait of Nick Adams that we see in the collection. Thanks again. Take care. If you've been enjoying my responses to Ernest Hemingway, you might also enjoy reading my posts on my Substack, JourneyCasts. There I write about my experiences as a teacher, short takes on a range of contemporary and modern poetry, fly fishing, the outdoors, the Adirondack Mountains, and many other topics. Check it out at arniesabatelli.substack.com. That's A-R-N-I-E-S-A-B-A-T-E-L-L-I at substack.com. I'd also like to mention another way you can support this podcast if you don't want to make a monthly contribution. You can go to buymeacoffee.com 
and find me there and make a one-time contribution. The address is buymeacoffee.com forward slash arniesabat7. Not sure why it's that, but it's A-R-N-I-E-S-A-B-A-T-7. And there you can find instructions on how to make a one-time contribution. Thanks again. Take care.